Turn again with me, if you will, to John chapter 10. We resume our study of this great gospel. John chapter 10. This morning, verses 11 to 21. As the 4th of July approached about a month ago, not quite a month ago, I suggested on several occasions to my family and to others, whenever we were talking about our plans for the 4th, I suggested that maybe we should include in our celebration a ceremonial reading of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, no one ever picked up on that idea. I, I, I don't understand. Um, we had a lot of talk about seeing fireworks. But uh, every time I mentioned the ceremonial reading, somehow it just kind of got dead for a minute. And then somebody changed the subject. I don't quite understand. You see, I was only half joking. I was somewhat serious. If celebrations did not include a regular reminder of the content, the substance of the celebration, after a while, they become mere hype. <coughs> We're having a party, but we can't remember why. There's a lot of fireworks, but we can't remember what's so exciting. And so it is with the Lord's Supper, our one great church celebration. If it is not to become a meaningless ritual, as it so often has, if it is not to become merely a nostalgic moment where we remember doing the same thing before sometime in another place with family or friends, if it is to be what it should be, it must be continually re-infused with the content, the substance of the celebration, the truths of God's Word that are symbolically set before us in the bread and the wine. Well, I think that's what our text does for us this morning as providentially we come to this section in our study of John. Here we have a tremendous amount of teaching concerning the death of Jesus on the cross. Teaching provided by the Lord himself prior to going to the cross as he tells us what it is that he intends to do, what it means, how we're to understand it. Let me read. John 10, verse 11, down to 21. Jesus is speaking. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep, so when the, he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. Then they, they too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is I, that I lay down my life only to take it up again. 
No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? In these verses, there is no question what the major theme is. Jesus laid down his life for his people. In these short few verses, that truth is stated no less than five times. Jesus laid down his life. He came to lay down his life. He laid it down to take it up again. Five times Jesus laid down his life for his people, we read. But beyond just stating the fact of his coming death, here Jesus unpacks for us some of its meaning. He makes three points concerning his death. There are three parts of this discussion which we'd like to look at this morning. The first is this. But in laying down his life, we see Jesus cares. Jesus cares. You know, there are a few things as painful in all of our life as being abandoned. We long to be cared for. We long to be cared about. We long to be protected and provided for. And yet, I don't want to become too cynical, but the truth remains that we must admit that almost no one really cares like we wish he did or she did. Everyone who ever said they cared, our parents, our teachers, our friends, our brothers and sisters, our husbands and wives, our pastors, everyone who ever said they cared, somewhere along the line disappointed us. Didn't prove as true as we had hoped left our hope shattered on the rocks of reality. Now for some of us, these are minor irritations in life that we have to just grow up and a little bit disillusioned we get over. For some, these are major things where people have been abandoned by those who were supposed to care. But there's not a person in this room who has not been wounded somewhere along the line by someone's lack of caring. That's why our celebration of the supper this morning should be such an encouragement to us. Here we are reminded that Jesus cares. He cares like no one else cares. He cares enough to lay down his life for us. And Jesus makes this point by comparing the good shepherd, Jesus himself, with the hired hands, the employees. Verses 11 to 13, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Now earlier Jesus talked about thieves and robbers who came to destroy the sheep, to bring harm, injury. That's not who's in view here. We're not talking thieves and robbers. On the contrary, here Jesus speaks of those whose job it is to care for the sheep. Those who are trained and skilled in shepherding. And of course, our lives are full of such people. Our parents, first of all. 
our spouses, our friends, and then most of all, our pastors, shepherds, supposed to care. That's their job, to care. They're paid to care, some of them. At least society expects them to care. We have all kinds of people who are shepherds over us in one way or another. And they do care. Parents care. Friends care. A lot of good pastors that care. But the truth is that when the crisis comes, when danger approaches, when the wolf is coming, when caring about us might threaten their own lives, that is when almost everyone will abandon us and run for cover. In the case of the man born blind, which set off this whole discussion back in chapter 9, the leaders cared about him as long as he said what they wanted, to say, wanted him to say, but when it was not politically expedient to care about him anymore, they abandoned him and kicked him out. The man's own parents abandoned him. We don't want to talk about this. You ask him. When it became a threat to their status in the community, they backed away. And in our culture, everyone assumes the right of a parent or a spouse or a friend, anyone to, to look out for themselves first. Well, even the most ardent pro-life people seldom argue that an unborn child ought to be protect, protected even if it endangers the life of the mother. But Jesus is different. Different from our parents, different from our friends, our teachers, different from our pastors, different from everyone. Jesus cares, even in the face of danger. He never abandons his sheep. Jesus gives his life rather than abandon the sheep. Romans 5, the Apostle Paul reflects on this truth when he says, Very rarely will anyone die even for a righteous man. Though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. Oh, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ cared. Christ cared died for us. This morning, if you've come in here feeling abandoned, betrayed, good for nothing, alone, I commend to you Jesus. No matter what's happened, no matter what someone has done, no matter what everyone has done to you, no matter, no matter how bitterly you have been disappointed, Jesus is worthy of your trust because he cares. As John Newton wrote 200 years ago, there is one above all others well deserves the name of friend. His is love beyond a brother's, costly, free, knows no end. They who once his kindness prove find it everlasting love. Which of all our friends to save us, could or would have shed his blood. But our Jesus died to have us reconciled in him to God. This was boundless love indeed. Jesus is a friend in need. Jesus cares, cares enough to give his life for his people.
Oh, but Jesus doesn't just stop at that first truth, telling us something about what it is he plans to do. He goes on and gets even more specific in verses 14 to 16. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep who are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Here Jesus says that in thinking about the implications of his death and what's going on in his death, that we need to understand not just that he cares, but we need to understand very specifically that he knows his own. That he cares and knows for uh, cares and know for and knows his own. Here we come upon the most difficult and one of the most difficult and mysterious truths in the Bible. For whom did Jesus die? What was his intended purpose when he went to the cross? Did he go to the cross to somehow die for everyone and make everyone savable to do almost everything that was necessary and just leave everyone one little bit of something to do to be saved? Or did he go to the cross to actually save certain people? To do everything necessary for their salvation? Did he just die for some great principle or did he die for specific people? If he did die for specific people, is it possible that they would not be saved? It would have to be saved if Christ died and did everything for them. Otherwise, he might have died in vain. Is that possible that he died and his purposes were thwarted? That doesn't seem right. Well, here is a difficult truth. But this passage, a passage where Jesus is unpacking the meaning of his death on the cross suggests that Jesus knows his own and that he laid down his life specifically to save them. Now, if you just bear with me a minute, let me explain what we're talking about here. In theology, we call this teaching the teaching of limited atonement or particular redemption is a better term. You see, though in one sense Jesus' death on the cross is unlimited it's infinite in its value and its power i mean by his death he atoned for the worst sinners in the world his atonement is of unlimited worth yet in another sense jesus death on the cross is limited in some way either it's limited in what it can accomplish or it's limited in whom it applies to Either Jesus died for everyone, every single person, but he didn't completely save any of them because every person is not saved. Or he died to completely save someone, but not every single person. In other words, either Jesus' death is limited in what it accomplishes, or it's limited in who it's intended for. Now, which does the Bible teach? Well, frankly, this is sometimes confusing. We have verses that say that Jesus loved the whole world. God loved the world and gave his son 
that whoever believes in him will certainly be saved. The Bible says those things. We have to say the Bible speaks truly when it speaks that way. And yet at the same time, the Bible also says no one comes to God. No one seeks God. In fact, no one would come at all unless God took the initiative to bring them. And when Jesus prays, he says, I don't even pray for the whole world. I only pray for my own that you've given me, Father. Very specific, particular sense. And the Bible speaks that way, and we have to say, yes, that's what the Bible means. So how do we bring all of these things together? People argue back and forth, but I think in this passage in John 10, we are instructed on this particular subject. Here in his discussion of laying down his life for the sheep, Jesus makes a point of the fact that his sheep are specific people. That they are those he knows personally, those he knows as intimately as he knows the Father and as the Father knows him. It's not everyone in the world, it's those specific sheep that he has called from this flock and from other flocks. Jesus does not plan to go to the cross for some principle, to provide some example for everyone to see and take it or leave it. Jesus does not sound like he's going to the cross to make everyone savable, but he doesn't really know how it's all going to turn out, whether anyone's going to respond or not. No, Jesus knows who the Father has given him. And he loves them like the Father loves him. And he is planning to go and to lay down his life and die in their place. In order that he might completely save his own. We call this particular redemption. Jesus went to the cross for particular people. Those given to him by the Father before the creation of the world. And he went to save them, and save them he does. Not 99 and 44, 100% saved, but 100% he saves them. He saves them from beginning to end, apart from anything in them that might have any merit. Jesus does it all on the cross. Particular, specific redemption. He died for his own. He knows his own. Oh, but lest these disciples or we should turn this doctrine into some smug little attitude thinking that Jesus is the possession of our private little group. He's our private little Messiah. He's our exclusive savior he came for our little group he belongs to us and who cares about the rest of the world jesus presents another great truth in the same context in verse 16 he says i have other sheep who are not of this fold this jewish fold and they too will listen to my voice there will be one flock and one shepherd oh you see there's a great mystery here Though Jesus' salvation is very personal, though he died specifically for those whom the Father has chosen, he did not die just for our little group. There is a universal aspect in Jesus' death. From the very beginning, it was designed for people from every tribe and nation and culture and language and, 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 and family and clan on the face of the earth. 
Yes, Jesus died for specific people, but they're not the people we might expect. They're not just people like us, people that we like. No, he died to save people you have not dreamed of, people you have no hope for, people you've given up on. And his design is to bring all of these, the sheep he has called from the flock of Israel and the sheep he has called from the barbarian flocks and from the, 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 the sophisticated Greek flocks and from the crazy American flocks and from the Russian flocks and from the Ethiopian flocks to, to save all of those and bring them into one flock and to be their one shepherd and only Jesus knows who are his own. We don't know who God has chosen. We only see when they follow, when they know the Savior, hear his voice and follow. Things are often not as they seem. Dr. James Boyce, when he's talking about this passage, he points out that if we were back in Sodom and Gomorrah, we would be just absolutely certain that Lot was not one of God's chosen people. While here is Lot living in this wicked city, apparently quite content to stay there in the midst of unspeakable perversion. And there he is, his family living in this and perhaps involved in this. Their hearts are attached to this and they don't want to leave. And who is this Lot? Boy, he's a long way from God, isn't he? Except that in the New Testament, God through Peter tells us that Lot was a righteous man and that every day his soul was distressed by the sin and wickedness he saw. Oh, it's not as we think. On the other hand, if we were looking, we would, every one of us, I'm sure to a person, we would be absolutely convinced that surely Judas is one of God's chosen ones. Why, he's one of the twelve that Jesus chose. After praying all night and picking from the great crowd of disciples, he chose twelve and one of them is Judas. He was trusted. He, he was so trusted that he kept all the money for the disciples. Certainly this one is one of God's own. No, but Jesus himself says that he was not, that from the beginning he was not, that in fact he was nothing less than a tool of Satan, not God's chosen child. You see, only Jesus knows. So as we celebrate the supper, we ought to be humbled by the grace of Christ Jesus. He does not just save those we might expect. He has chosen, he died for, he is calling people who we never would have dreamed of. People from languages and cultures we don't even like. People whose sins are so despicable that we wouldn't even associate with them. Calling them to be trophies of his grace. Oh, but in the midst of that great plan for the nation, it is still true that Jesus loves me. He knows my name. He went to the cross with my name on his heart, dying for me, not just a principle, but in my place, knowing my particular weakness to save my particular soul. It is not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, had thou not chosen me. 
Thou from the sin that stained me hast cleansed and set me free of old. Thou hast ordained me that I should live for thee. To a sovereign mercy called me and taught my opening mind. The world had else enthralled me to heavenly glories blind. My heart owns none before thee for thy rich grace I thirst this knowing if I loved thee thou must have loved me first you see Jesus knows his own he gave his life for them and then one more most important truth that Jesus would have us to understand here and that is that Jesus voluntarily laid down his life for his people Jesus voluntarily laid down his life. You know, when young people die, we often comment on the tragedy of it all. What a waste of a life with so many years still ahead. And so when we read that at age 33, Jesus was crucified in a blatant miscarriage of human justice, we might be tempted to say, how tragic. What a sad twist of fate with his whole life before him, that he was executed unjustly. Oh, but in this passage, Jesus would bring us up short for such thinking. No one took his life, he says. He laid it down for his people. That's what he says explicitly in verse 18. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. You see, it's a matter of authority. We do not have the authority to lay down our lives or to take our lives up. We, we could commit suicide and kill our bodies, but we don't have the authority to do so. And we certainly don't have the power or the authority to take our lives back once we have uh, taken our life away. But Jesus here presents himself as the one who does have authority over life and death. The one who has the authority to offer himself as a sacrifice to pay for sins. And then the authority to take his life up again from the grave to reign and rule over those he has saved. We see that authority exercised as we read through God's word. For example, when Jesus is arrested in the garden of Gethsemane and Peter hauls out his sword and and strikes off the ear of the high priest's servant. He wants to fight. And Jesus says, do you think, Peter, that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal 12 legions of angels? See, Jesus is in authority. He exercises authority to lay down his life voluntarily. He didn't have to. They didn't take his life. They didn't drag him away. So many times it has said in the Gospel of John already, they tried to arrest him. His time had not yet come. He has authority to lay down his life voluntarily. And then he got into the same matter with Pilate the next morning at the trial. And Pilate is frustrated with Jesus. And Jesus won't answer him like he thinks he should. And Pilate finally says, don't you realize that I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? Well, that would make shivers run up and down your back, wouldn't it? Trembling in your boots. No, not Jesus. Jesus replies, you would have no authority, authority over me. 
You have no power over me except that which is given to you from above. You see, no one takes Jesus' life. Not, not the Jewish leaders, not Pilate. No one takes Jesus' life. He freely gives himself for his people. Jesus did not die a tragic miscarriage of justice, though it was that. Jesus did not die a victim of religious intolerance, although it was that. He did not die to provide an example of how to face death like a man. No. He did not die a pathetic victim of his own uh, delusions of grandeur. Oh, no. Jesus did not die to provide an example of nonviolent resistance to evil. Oh, no, that's not Jesus thinking. Jesus voluntarily laid down his life. The shepherd became the sacrificial lamb to pay the price for our sins. The innocent dying for the guilty in order that he might then take it up again and call us to himself to reign and to rule as the Lord of lords and King of kings in obedience to the Father's plan. So here as we celebrate the supper this morning, we ought to have our sights raised above the accidents and incidents and tragedies of life in this fallen world. That's not what we're talking about in the supper. Here we see that because of Jesus, we are not adrift on a sea of chance in this world. Here we see that God's sovereign purposes have been worked out and are being worked out to the last detail. Here we see that Jesus, obedient to the Father, uh, unified with the Father in his great plan to save us, now voluntarily laying down his life to satisfy God's justice, took it up again in order to bring us salvation. Here we see God ordering all the events of history, doing everything necessary, even overruling in the wickedness of nations and kings and leaders, working everything according to his good purposes in order to save his people. See, when we eat the supper, we do not remember a day of deepest gloom, a day of infamy. No, we celebrate a day of victory, the completion of God's plan when Jesus voluntarily gave himself for sinners, laid down his life to take it up again and save us. Oh, these truths could not be made up. They're too good to be true. As someone said, it would take a Jesus to invent a Jesus. Well, in response to all of this, some said, these last two verses, he must be mad. He's a madman. He is a demon. But others said, oh no. These are not the words of a demon. And these are not the deeds of a demon. Jesus cares. He died to save his people. Jesus knows his own. He died to save them. Jesus voluntarily laid down his life in payment for his people's sin. So come celebrate. Jesus has saved his people. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word that shines light upon all of our experience.
that cuts through the darkness of the world and through the wrong head thinking of the world and of ourselves and shows us how you think, though your thinking is beyond our comprehension. Yet we thank you that you've made yourself known to us. Lord, as we celebrate the supper this morning, I pray that you would fill our hearts and minds with these great truths, that you would refresh our celebration with the content, the substance of it all. Truths so wonderful that we cannot fathom them, and yet in which we rest our eternal souls. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.